Thanks for joining us for World of Lies. This is Purity for Life. Something happened in the 60s. There was a tremendous shift in the spiritual realm. There was a rebellion, a lawlessness that broke forth in 1968 that affected the culture and the direction of the culture to the point now that truth has become so devalued. In a world of lies, if I'm going to avoid drowning in deception, I must know what the truth is. First, I turn to the world. Choose your own truth, it says. That doesn't seem like it's going to lead anywhere good. So I turn to the church. If anyone knows the truth, it must be them. Some of the people I meet only seem to have more questions, as if the only thing you can know for certain is that you can't know anything for sure. Some other people can answer all my questions and with great confidence, but as I get to know them, it doesn't seem like their knowledge makes them any different from me. And then there's the people whose lives are just an absolute mess. Addictions, divorces, suicides, and depression. But I haven't given up hope. I believe that there is something here. So I begin to wonder, is what the church culture calls truth just more deception? And then I begin to wonder, what even is truth? This is the third interview in our new series, World of Lies with Steve Gallagher. Today, Deceived About the Truth. People have called the day and age that we live in a post-truth world. And it seems to me that 60 years ago, people wouldn't even have thought in terms like that. Okay, yeah, there would be major disagreements about what the truth was, but people wouldn't have thought in terms of there is no such thing as absolute truth. Mm-hmm. How did we get to this place? Okay, well, I'm 66 years old. So 60 years ago, you know, that is the world that I grew up in. We understood the difference between right and wrong, you know, and um, the culture that I grew up in in those early days was a culture that was founded on biblical concepts, Christian concepts. I knew what was right and I knew what was wrong. I chose to go the path of sin and crime and all the things that I did. Something happened in the 60s. There was a tremendous shift in the spiritual realm. There was a rebellion, a lawlessness that broke forth in 1968 that affected the culture and the direction of the culture. So fast forward 10, 20, 30 years later, and you have gone way down this path now as a, as a country uh, to the point now that truth has become so devalued. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we've gone from a Christian culture to a more along the lines of socialism culture, which is atheism, evolution, life without God. So it's humanistic. And in humanism, there are no absolutes about right and wrong. You know, there's a complete setting aside of that, a devaluing of truth. Truth is not 
important because your truth is different than my truth. You know, we all know those these sayings that go around nowadays. And that's really what has happened is a tremendous devaluation of truth. It's just not that important anymore. Pastor Steve, in the first chapter of your book, you talked about moral relativism, and you expressed a concern for anyone who would even toy with the idea, which obviously is rampant in our culture. But then you identified another group of people that you're also really concerned about, and this, I think, would surprise people. You said, and I'm paraphrasing, that you're very concerned with the masses of people in churches who hold to the historical doctrines and believe the general truths that are revealed in the Bible— Aren't they walking in the truth? Why would you be concerned about them? I'm concerned with a large percentage of them who are um, who accept mentally the truths of of the Bible, the historical facts revolving around Christ and so on. They accept all that, but their level of belief in what is taught in Scripture basically stops there and does not go into the real issues that Scripture brings forth, which is what, um, it's the kind of inward decision-making that um, comes out in the way you live your life. Paul talked to, said it to Titus, he talked about people who profess the truth, you know, Christianity, but by their lives they deny it. So there's a disconnect between what they say they believe and the reality of their life. If you really believed it, then it's going to deeply, radically affect the way you live your life. It means more than going to church on Sunday and reading the latest, you know, um, Ravi Zacharias book or something. It, It goes beyond mental accepting and mental acknowledgement and mental even comprehension of, at some level, the truths of Scripture, it should translate into the way you live your life. If you really believe something, I I heard the metaphor one time, if there's a spider crawling on a guy's leg and he says, yeah, I know it's there and it's like has no effect on him, then he doesn't really believe it. If he really believed that a tarantula or whatever was crawling on his leg, he would scream and hit it and jump and run. I mean, there would be a radical reaction to Mm. it. That is what we're no longer seeing in the church, a radical reaction to the truth. Okay, and I think there are a lot of people who would be watching this who would probably say a hearty amen to that. But you actually took that line of thought further and said that your concern is that the amount of biblical knowledge in America is actually harming people. And I, if you had said that saturating yourself with worldly information is going to do harm to your spiritual walk, most people go, yep, I get that. But to say that people saturating themselves with biblical information is doing more to lead them away from the truth than good, that requires some explanation. 
and I'll be glad to give it to you. <laughs> what I'm referring to there is the way that a lot of sermons come forth, which are focusing on peripheral issues such as the way the Pharisees lived their lives at the time, or, you know, this was going on in the culture in mm. the year 31 AD, or, you know, interesting tidbits, information that kind of helps fill in, you know, some of the understanding of the culture of the time and all that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff is, there's nothing wrong with it mm -hmm. uh, in and of itself. The problem is when a 50-minute, well, it's hard to come up with a 50 or 60-minute sermon anymore. Now they're more like 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, but when a, when a sermon is all about those peripheral things, nice little interesting tidbits, and you just get that little feeling inside like, oh, that's interesting. Mm. And that's what our sermons become. Instead of the preacher putting his finger in the face of his congregation, the people he's giving his life to, the people he's responsible before a holy God to, and saying, there is sin in your life. There is worldliness in your life. There is carnality in your life. You are not giving your life to Jesus Christ in the way that he's called you to. That's truth. And that is the kind of truth that is lacking in the church today because preachers won't do that. Not very many will do that. And so, yeah, that kind of extra biblical kind of understanding, all those tidbits and information, yeah, we're being inundated with that and it's not changing our lives. Well, what I appreciate about your answer is that it's relevant to everyone, whether you're flirting with moral relativism or you're attending a doctrinally sound church, you're saying that more correct facts isn't what's really vital to finding truth. But if that's the case, I mean, it kind of begs the question, if more facts doesn't lead me to truth, then what hope is there of finding truth? Hunger. You know, um, when Jesus really confronted the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he said, you focus on these trivial matters like tithing mint and cumin and stuff like that, and you're neglecting the weightier issues of the law, which are mercy and justice and righteousness and so on. And that is what is going on in the church today, is all this focusing on trivialities and, and neglecting the weightier issues, mm -hmm. which are the things to do with our life in God. Can we have hope? Absolutely. It may not come through the organized church system as it is today. Any believer can have a connection with God, you know, outside of organized religion. And I'm not, you know, I'm not promoting <laughs> doing away with going to church and all of that. We need fellowship and so on. But I'm just saying that our hope is between myself and God, between you and God. It's all about that relationship 
that fellowship that the Apostle John talks about in his first epistle. It's, it has to do with um, what we can have with the Lord, whether or not we're hearing that kind of piercing truth come forth from the pulpit. I can have it with God in person, hmm. in private, in my own private time with the Lord. So hope? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, there's all kinds of hope because we can always turn to the Lord and he will gladly uh, lead us in the way of truth. Amen. Thank you very much. Amen. Brooks Popwell is one of our counselors here at Pure Life Ministries. A couple of years ago, he wrote an article for our Unchained magazine entitled, I Thought I Had Faith. In it, he talks about growing up in a conservative home, going to a Bible-believing church, being convinced that he was walking in the truth, and yet, well, I'll let him tell you more about it. Many sincere Christians find it difficult to believe that they are truly saved. Although they can distinctly remember the day they were converted, have experienced God's love and discipline over the years, and their lives reveal the unmistakable quality of saving faith, they are still plagued with doubts about their salvation. People like this need the comfort of the gracious gospel and messages that convey assurance of salvation. I was a totally different story. There was never any doubt in my mind about my eternal destination. And yet, my teenage and early adult life had been characterized by secret sins of fantasy, pornography, and eventually full-blown homosexuality. How could it be that I had never questioned my salvation? Partly, it had to do with the fact that when I was a young teenager, I did have some kind of experience with the Lord. This led me to believe that I had become a part of the family of God that day. In addition, I grew up in a church world which generally conveyed a shallow view of salvation. Sure, they presented a conservative, doctrinally correct message, believe on Jesus and you are saved, but when I looked at the people around me, many of them seemed to live in the same apathy and indifference I did, even if their issues weren't the same. We were all expected to act like Christians, but it was very rare to come across someone who was truly on fire for God. Because of this, true discernment about the condition of a person's heart before God was lacking. All of these factors combined to create a general assumption that salvation was fundamentally a change of belief, not fundamentally a total change of heart. Brooks, thanks for coming in and taking the time to chat about your testimony. Um, in the last segment, our listeners heard an interview with Pastor Steve on the subject, Deceived About the Truth. One of the things that has become clear to me in the 12 years that I've worked here at Pure Life is that many, many people are deceived about what the gospel is fundamentally about. And Pastor Steve alluded to this when he said that one of his deep concerns with the church today is that many people, when they say they believe in the Bible, all they mean is that they mentally assent to certain truths. And you touched on this when you said in your church that there was a general assumption that salvation was fundamentally a change of belief, not fundamentally a total change of heart. 
Now, when you make a distinction between a change of belief and a change of heart, what do you mean, and how did you see that play out in your own life? Yeah, Nate, let me explain it in a different way. As I grew up in church, I found there were two messages about salvation that I heard. First, how you get saved, and Mm -hmm. then second, the results of what should happen when you're saved. So on the one hand, what I heard about how to get saved sounded really simple and easy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, which, of course, is all true. So a change of belief. Yeah. But on the other hand, there was this reality that, of course, I heard and knew that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's the change of heart. So these two things sounded to me like two different messages. Really, you can't separate them, but I heard this as two different things. Uh. never really understood that in the right way. So what happened for me was this. I made a choice and ended up deciding at the end of the day that salvation was basically a matter of just believing. And once you believed, you were saved, period, no matter what. I kind of just ignored the other part. So then, since I'd already gone through this crisis of faith in my own life when I was a teenager and really nailed it down, so to speak, and decided, I believe in Jesus. Okay. To me, the matter was settled then. How could God's word not be true? I had to be saved. Uh Uh-huh. But then over the years, my life got worse and worse with sexual sin, and I knew that didn't line up with what I'd been taught to be the results of getting saved. Because there is this expectation of the gospel changing your heart and your life. But basically by that point, because of my views, I was able to brush all of that aside and say it didn't negate the fact that I was saved. Great. Let's listen to more of your story. Attending a Christian high school should have allowed the germ of faith in my heart to blossom into real salvation. Instead, I became increasingly more selfish and preoccupied with worldly entertainment. All of this grew much worse in college. My education was paid for by my parents, which left me with an unlimited opportunity to live an undisciplined life and to give over to a growing habit of pornography. Moving on to graduate school created more space between me and my family, and this distance allowed my fascination with sexual sin to flourish. One day, I happened upon a homosexual video on YouTube. I was instantly fascinated by what I saw. It was different, new, and somehow thrilling to me. For the next two years, I steadily saturated my mind with homosexual pornography, leaving me with a fully entrenched lust for other men. My life eventually became a product of my own thinking. I moved back in with my parents upon graduation, But when my dad discovered my addiction to pornography, he issued me an ultimatum. Either the porn goes, or you will have to move out. I wasn't about to give up the greatest source of pleasure I had ever experienced, so I moved out. It was then that I threw off any pretense of Christianity. The freedom to do as I pleased was exhilarating. I immediately began having encounters with other men. At first, these trysts were somewhat occasional, But before long, my homosexual lifestyle got completely out of control. I was now hooking up with multiple sexual partners every week, sometimes every day. I was now truly given over to my sin 
as Romans 1 describes. Two years of nonstop perversion left me hollowed out and miserable. It was then that God once again began moving in my heart. Eventually, the weight of conviction became so strong, I decided to move back home. My family and church rejoiced to see my return. But somehow, in spite of all that I had done up to that point, I quickly settled back into church life as if nothing had happened. Throughout this time, it never once occurred to me to question my salvation. Although I was back within the protective walls of the church and growing in my desire to live a godly life, the temptation to return to my sin was still very strong. Now, Brooks, after you had this experience of conviction, you knew that your life was wrong, and you decided, all right, it's time to make a, a, a real turn. I'm going to go back to church. You said that after that point, you never once questioned your salvation. And I wonder how many people would say, well, why should you? Again, you did forsake the homosexual lifestyle. You did return to the church. You were reconciled to your family. So why do you believe that you should have at that time actually been questioning your salvation? Yeah, you know, I actually think it's kind of ironic that someone in my situation can look at all this crazy stuff they've been involved in and somehow still conclude that things are okay with God. I mean, for me, just because I viewed the fact that I had turned away from my sin and confessed it, that was evidence of my salvation. But I was living a homosexual lifestyle for years, and uh-huh. for me, it was like all of those years of sin and just these extreme things I did— hooking up with people, pornography, all of that just became some kind of parenthesis of sin that was taken care of just because I confessed it. Okay. I was off track for a really long time, but now I was back on track in my mind. Now that I have more perspective and I look back and I look especially in comparison with the Word of God, to me what stands out is all these serious warnings from Jesus and the apostles about this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Jesus said things like, whoever loves his life will lose it, and every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Paul warned that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, and John said that we know the children of the devil in that everyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. And there's other warnings too, but Yeah, to me, when you start with the Bible, Mm. it seems very hard to defend how someone in my position who's been living a lifestyle of sexual sin really has reason to feel confident about their salvation. I mean, I'm glad I was seeking God during that time, and I'm glad anybody would want to change and start living for God. That's all very good. But I think the place to start is from a place of being in the fear of God and seeing all these warnings that he gave us and asking God, how can we come to the place of having a real relationship with him? Hmm. I remembered my godly uncle had urged me months before to enter the Pure Life Ministries residential program. The thought of giving up control over my life was a bit scary, but I was intrigued by the ministry's claim that real freedom was available to anyone who truly desired it. I decided to go. One of the first things that struck me was the strong sense of God's presence on the campus. It quickly became clear that the staff expected a far deeper level of commitment from themselves and the students. 
than what I had been accustomed to. The predominant message I heard was not that I should feel assured of my salvation, but that I had every reason to doubt it. To be saved, they claimed, meant that my life should reflect the fact that a radical and permanent change had occurred in my heart. This strong message ran directly contrary to the underlying message that I had been accustomed to hearing. In spite of the holy atmosphere at Pure Life Ministries, I persisted in giving over to my homosexual lust. I quietly, perhaps unconsciously, insisted that I could have both God and homosexuality. My life was mine to live any way I chose. One day I was walking in the woods considering whether I ought to get baptized. This was, of course, because I assumed I was now right with God. But suddenly the words of Jesus came to mind that the church was to make disciples and baptize them. But thinking about discipleship brought back other words from Jesus, that a true disciple of Christ is supposed to hate his life, give up everything, and follow Jesus. In a flash, I saw my life had been the utter opposite of all of this. I knew that I was not a disciple. The clarity and certainty of this revelation was so intense that I spent two weeks crying out to God for Him to change my life. It became very real to me that I dare not miss the opportunity to come to know Jesus for real while I was still at Pure Life. One afternoon, the Lord spoke to me very clearly. If I would commit myself to walk away from homosexuality and every other aspect of selfish living, He would give me a genuine assurance of salvation. It was a promise I could not risk ignoring or resisting. Right then and there, I committed myself to follow Him wherever He led. That was the day I started to live an authentic life with God. And that was the day that I experienced a true assurance of salvation. Brooks, your description of your true conversion is obviously a precious one to you and a very helpful one when talking about real salvation because this wasn't anything like your initial quote-unquote conversion experience, which was nothing more than just mental assent. This was weeks of crying out to the one who could make you a new creature, a truly new creature, who could change your affections and your desires and the true course of your life. And now you're counseling men, and you're helping them to go through the same process that you did, that the Lord brought you through. When you reflect on your walk with God now, what do faith and assurance mean to you in a way that's different than when you came here? I think when a lot of people hear me tell that story and talk about what happened, it maybe to them sounds really negative. Mm. And that's true to some degree. I did go through a lot of hard things as a part of all that, and it was hard to come to the place where I saw, for me, I wasn't really saved, and I had to start from scratch, so Mm -hmm. to speak. But I think what gets lost in all this sometimes is the thing that happens after the difficulty of facing reality. You know, when I came to that place, that's where I met the Lord. Hmm. And I think those statements that Jesus made about 
you know, the parable of the man finding this treasure, and then he goes and sells everything that he has to buy the field where he found it. That was a sudden change of events for him, but he was willing to do something crazy because he really wanted to have that treasure. And that's really how it was for me, mm. just going through it. I saw my need was so extreme, so I started you know, seeking God seriously. I would cry out literally in prayer and get in the Word like my life depended on it, which was definitely different than before. But looking back, that was a special time for me because Christianity wasn't just an idea mm. anymore. It wasn't mm. just a good way to live. It was a matter of life and death. So that made me really hungry, and the truth was coming alive to me. The verse that God gave me in this time was, if you seek me, you will find me, if you search for me with all your heart. That yeah. was my lifeline. And I can say that I found proof that that promise is true. He did it for me. He really came to me and mm-hmm. saved me. So when you ask me about faith and assurance, all I can say is that even this very painful process of seeking God was the way that faith became something real to me. And the assurance that I got when God saved me was something strong and alive that was built on the real interaction I had had with God. Maybe you're asking how that's different from when I was a teenager. I guess I can only testify from where I am now five years later that I've come into an experience of what that verse means when it says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Mm. That's what happened to me. That's been the fruit of what came out of that experience. And I know that if anyone seeks God sincerely, they can have that same transformation as well. He makes that available to any person. If there is someone who is in the place where you were five years ago, seeking but still unsure, um, wanting something and realizing that that there is a real experience to be had, and they just don't know if they have it. When do you think that it would come to them? Yeah, you know, there's no cookie-cutter answer for that, and I think part of what can be so overwhelming is just the fear of the unknown of like, wow, if I'm questioning everything now, what is this going to look like? Yeah. And I think it's easy to fixate on this topic of assurance that we're talking about. It becomes almost like a product we're trying to purchase. Mm or a thing that we're trying to get to, assurance. Now I have assurance. But I think that gets us off track because really if someone is struggling with their assurance, I would just point them to the Word and encourage them, just start by looking at what the Bible says. Read what Jesus says about following him in the Gospels, especially starting with Luke 14 maybe as a starting place because he says a lot in there. Read the book of 1 John. And if you discover, based on the Word of God, that there is good reason for you to question whether you're really saved, then, okay, that's your starting point. Hmm. That's going to give you a real sense of need, which Hmm. Jesus called poverty of spirit. Hmm. And that's what he said was the gateway into the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first thing, getting your eyes off of this controversial issue of assurance and just onto a more basic issue of, what does the Bible say about my spiritual need? Hmm. From there, I think the other place would just be to point someone straight to Jesus. If someone is lacking assurance, it's only going to come from one place, and that's Jesus. He is a real person. He called himself the way, the truth, and the life. There's really just no way around going to him personally and bringing this need before him. So, you know, pray, slow down, take time with this, seek him in any way you can, really, 
because assurance is really just going to be what comes out of having close fellowship with Jesus. Mm. His Spirit becomes united with our spirit and starts changing us from the inside out. You know, all those promises we talked about earlier of change, that it comes from that close relationship with Him, and assurance just flows out of all of that. So rather than just getting focused then on assurance or lack of assurance, salvation, lack of salvation. Ultimately, it's just going to come down to drawing near to Jesus and just receiving everything we need from him, whatever that ends up looking like in our lives. I wonder how many people are in the same situation that Brooks was in, sitting in church, hearing preaching, interacting with Christians, but all the while having a heart full of wickedness, They never outwardly reject the gospel message, but their hearts prove that they've never really accepted it either because they continue practicing sin while claiming to be saved. This is probably the most prevalent way church people are deceived about the truth. I'll reiterate what Pastor Steve said once again. We must examine ourselves to see if we are in fact walking in the truth. There's too much at stake to be deceived about our true spiritual condition. We'll explore deception in the church in more detail in later episodes, but next week join us as we first look at the deception in our secular culture. Thanks for joining us for this special series, World of Lies, on Purity for Life. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.